You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Oh, good morning, good morning. Man, it's so great to have Jessica and June back on yes. the stage. Yes, it is. Yes, uh, yes. Jessica has become COVID-free now after a bout with it, as my compatriot next to me here has. And so now they have the antibodies, and they're safe as they can be. So if you want to be safe, just wander around behind them and let them run interference for you. Stay with us. Stay with them. We will help you out. That's really scary. Have we come to that? I guess. Is that the level we've come to? That's the the danger we're living in these days. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 7. We have have, um, a, a lot of... Really great stuff, I think, to unpack this morning. Hopefully your Thanksgiving was great with your families, got to spend some time uh, together, if anything, just resting and eating way too many things with just uh, embarrassing amounts of butter in it, and, um, <laughs> and now you're back in church. And for those of you online uh, still at home, we miss you. We hope to see you again sometime soon. You know, there have been several history-shaping moments in, uh, throughout the world and, and even in the United States. Moments that, that were so fundamentally earth-shattering that it literally, when we look back at history, we can see that was a moment that, that sort of altered the course of history in a really, really big way. Of course, every event has impact on history, but I'm talking big-time impact on history. July 4th, 1776, for example, the Declaration of Independence was signed. I, I think we can all agree that was a pretty big moment. That, that changed the course of history uh, a, a great deal. January 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, another earth-shattering, history-shaping moment. July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong took one small <laughs> step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Exactly. What an iconic phrase, by the way. I was thinking about that this week. Did he write that before he went up there, or was that spur of the moment? I'd love to ask him. I'm sure he probably gave that a little bit of thought. Man, that's just so good. It's just poetic. Great moments in history that have have shaped history in a a profoundly impactful way. There have been some bad moments as well. Wait a minute. You left one out. What? July the 24th. Uh Uh-huh. 1954. I know where he's going with this. A who, day who was born on that, that day? changed history. Who was born on that day? Go ahead and tell us, James. <clears throat> if you don't know, you're very uninformed. Go ahead. That was, you're right. I can't believe that was, it was an oversight on my it part. Was history shaping oversight. <laughs> history shaping moment. There have been some bad dates as well, dates that have also fundamentally altered the fabric of history in a, in a negative way. January 22nd, 1973. Anyone know what, day, what happened on that day? The official decision was rendered on a Supreme Court case known as Roe v. Wade. Uh, It held that women in the United States have a fundamental right to choose whether or not to have abortions without excessive government restrictions. It also actually struck down a uh, Texas ban on abortions, rendering it unconstitutional. It's a moment that, that... that really reshaped American history. I think if, if we can probably agree on that. What, what are, whatever your opinion is on it, if we go back to that date and imagine that that was written differently, that was a different decision, um, America looks a lot different. It looks a lot different, both in culture, 
um, in, in ideology, and in people. There'd be more people here. I mean, that's this kind of the sad, harrowing reality. Um, but, but these are moments, right? And, and there are certainly more. I could go on and on. There are several in this country, several in the world that have fundamentally altered the way the world is shaped. It's true for the United States. It's also true for God's people. Acts chapter 7 is one of them. Last week, we talked about how in the early church, after Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, the church was doing really well. It was moving full force. Things were happening. People were being saved. It was an awesome time. It was a party, right? And uh, it was a pre-Christian era, if you remember us talking about the pre-Christian and and, and post-Christian time. And it was until Acts chapter 4 that things really began to get rocky. Peter and John get arrested. We talked about that last week as well. Their trial before the, uh, the court, the high priest, the uh, Sadducees. It's not until chapter 7, however, that someone pays the ultimate price for their faith. Stephen, one of the early disciples in the church, is stoned to death. He is martyred. I mean stoned not in the 1960s way. Um, Isn't that a shame that you have to… You have to clarify you these have to things. Clarify Context matters. Like, man, how much did he smoke to die from being stoned? <laughs> Yeah, he was stoned for his faith, first recorded Christian martyr. Now, to give you some context, Acts chapter 6 lays this out a little bit, right? So, there, there were, they were in need of some, some people to distribute food to widows in Jerusalem. And so, the disciples get together, they choose seven individuals. Acts 6.5 tells us they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Now, you'll notice that Stephen is the only one with any sort of spiritual description. It says that he was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Acts 6, 8 says that Stephen was full of grace and power and was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, these are, this sounds like, like a, a pretty noticeable individual, doesn't it? Somebody who's full of power and, and, and performing great wonders and signs seems like somebody who's going to draw a crowd. That's exactly what he does. He, he draws a crowd. The religious leaders immediately arrest him. They put him on trial, and it is there that Stephen gives a sort of overview of the history of Israel. He begins in the Old Testament with this pattern that we see over and over and over and over again, where God calls men to His service. He equips them for the task that He has at hand for them. And then as they carry out that task, they are typically persecuted because of what it is that they are doing. And God continues to push them and equip them such that they are able to carry out His mission. And and Stephen goes through some of the biggest names in the Old Testament. Abraham, he talks about Joseph. We just spent a lot of time on Joseph. If you're in life Bible studies in Genesis, before Amos, we spent like six weeks talking about, seven weeks talking about Joseph. Uh, Then he gets to Moses. Moses is the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy tells us. So these are all huge names, very well-known, very important. And after laying out the whole case, he goes on and on, person after person, of how this has been happening, and they have been, been persecuted by people who rejected Yahweh, who rejected His law. And then he says this in verses 51 through 53, probably the most uh, strongest, most impactful verse in the book of Acts. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. 
Stephen was such a quiet and demure right. person. Right, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that is straight to the point, straight to the heart. And the question is, how do the religious leaders respond? How do they take this? How do, now, at this point, they have a choice, right? They have a choice. We're going to talk about the verses 54 through 60 is our text this morning. But at this point, they are faced with a choice. They can either let this truth break them and humble them and lead them to repentance, to get right with God, to confess their guilt before a forgiving and merciful God. But I think most of you probably know that's not the choice they made. That's not what they do. Verse 54, it says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged they were cut to the heart, some of your, or cut to the quick, some of your, your translations say, and they ground their teeth at him. This was the final straw, it pushed them over the top. And so we're going to walk through this text this morning, verses 54 through 60, and point out just some simple spiritual truths that flow from this text. And here's the first one James is going to talk about. When you stand for Jesus, Jesus stands for you. Sometimes and quite often, actually, what we do is we take a text of Scripture and we exegete it word by word, and, and we, we pull out doctrinal truths and, yep. and, and those kinds of things. And, and then sometimes we take a particular text. In other words, we could have taken that whole sermon that, that Stephen delivered to them and oh. taken that apart piece by piece. Weeks. Would, it would take weeks and weeks really to work through all that and actually teach all the intricacies of it. And certainly we do that at particular times. But then sometimes we take a, a text of Scripture and we try to devolve uh, our... our uh, pull out principles, some truths that are not directly stated in the text, but are obviously representative of truths that are in God's Word, and they're being demonstrated there. So this morning, rather than taking that message that he preached, that, that Stephen preached uh, apart piece by piece, or even the text there, we're going to draw out three very important things that we can learn for, from this text of what happens when a believer is faithful. Yeah. What, what is it that takes place? What are some things that we as Christ followers can count on whenever we refuse to cave, whenever we refuse to back up, whenever we refuse to give in to the temptation, if you will, to soften uh, the message and, of the gospel of Jesus Christ? When we refuse to do that, what are some things that happen? Right. Well, the first one, as Derek said, is that when you stand up for Jesus, he stands up for you. How many of you remember the old hymn, stand up, stand up for Jesus? There's a popular song, uh, Christian song called Stand Up by, what's this dude's name? Zach. Zach. Zachary something. Anyway, yeah. I, we, I, we should have played it this morning because it's an incredible, incredible song, and you can't sit still when you're listening to it. But when you stand up for, G, for Jesus, this text indicates to us, and the Scripture indicates to us, that Jesus stands up for you. Now, verse 55 of Acts 7 says that they began gnashing their teeth, okay? That's after Peter had just basically turned the mirror around on them and said, this is what your people did. They persecuted the prophets. God sent his son. You crucified him, blah, 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 blah. And they were so distraught. It says they began to gnash their teeth and they began to tear their robes. And then it says of Stephen that Stephen gazed intently into heaven. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that Stephen was kind of daydreaming or that he was stargazing, but what it indicates to us is that God actually gave his faithful servant Stephen 
an opportunity to glimpse into heaven and see what was happening in heaven. This would be an epiphany is one of the ways that we would, we would refer to this, that a, very, a vision that God gave his faithful servant Stephen to have. Now, in, this is very in, uh, incredibly rare in Scripture that God allows anyone to actually see into the heavens. In fact, only six times in God's Word are we given record of God allowing this to happen. It happened in Isaiah chapter 6 to Isaiah, the prophet. God allowed him to look into heaven. It happened in Ezekiel chapter 10, the prophet Ezekiel. The apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when he was struggling with this thing about the thorn in the flesh. And then John in the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, in chapter 4 and 5, John gazes into heaven and actually sees what is going on. And then the sixth time is right here in Acts chapter 7. So this is quite a special event that God is allowing his servant Stephen to have. He is opening the doors of heaven and letting Stephen look in and see what is happening as it were. And what Stephen sees is incredible. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now Stephen is about to give his life as a martyr for Christ Jesus. They're about to stone him to death. But before that happens, as they're gnashing their teeth, Stephen looks into the heavens and God opens the heavens, the doorway of heaven, and he allows him to look in and he sees the risen Christ, the Lord Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. This is the only place in all of the Bible where Jesus is referred to as standing at the right hand of God. Every time that, you ref that the scripture refers to Jesus in his ascended condition before the Father, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Every single time he's always seated at the right hand of the Father, never seen as standing. And the imagery of being seated is an imagery that is used to refer to the fact that, that now he has finished his redemptive work. He has finished his, his work that the Father sent him to earth to do, to be born uh, in the manger, to grow and live a life of perfect obedience, lay that life down as a perfect sacrifice, be crucified, be raised from the dead, and then in Acts chapter 1, ascending to the right hand of the Father. And when he did, the Scripture says, then he took a seat, he was seated at the right hand of God, in indicating my work is finished, to sit down, I've finished the work, and it's done. Every time in Scripture that it's used to sitting, Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, it's indicating that. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, and he's the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Redemptive work mm. is completed. Mm. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for the sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then Revelation chapter 3, verse 21 says, He who overcomes 
I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So we could just read over and over and over this imagery of Jesus having sat down at the right hand of God, referring to the fact that his redemptive work was finished. But suddenly in all of the scripture, that imagery of sitting down at the right hand of the Father, Stephen gazes into heaven and Jesus is no longer seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is now standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, what do you think is being referred to here? The only logical explanation is that Jesus is doing for Stephen what we often do when we honor someone, right? What do you do when someone of repute or of success or someone who has accomplished some great deed or because of their life they de- or their position, they are deserving of honor? What do we do when a judge walks into the courtroom? What do they tell you to do? All rise. All rise. Why? That is an, a symbol of honor of the one who is entering into the room. It's culturally, all cultures virtually have used this. So Jesus is seated to the right hand of God, but his faithful st- st- servant Stephen, who has now proclaimed the gospel to these people and is about to give his life as a martyr for the cause of Christ, Jesus opens the doorway into heaven and allows Stephen to see that I now am standing in honor of you, my servant. You see, when you stand for Jesus, Jesus stands for you. Mm. Now that sounds kind of strange for us to think about God honoring us. Does God honor people? Does God honor human beings? I did a search this last week once again just to see how many times it is referred to in the Scripture that God honoring a person, God honoring his people. As a matter of fact, he said that he will do that. He says, if you honor me, I will honor you. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. But now the Lord declares, those who honor me, I will honor. Isn't that incredible? To think about that we can have the God of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, giving us honor, sinners who deserve nothing but death and saved by the grace of God, that when we honor him, we have the promise from him that he will honor us. And so Stephen is a man of honor. He has honored his faith. He has honored the gospel, and he's about to give his life. And Jesus says, let me show you something, Stephen, as you are there about to give your life. I am standing in honor of you. Mm. Now, this question always comes up as a pastor for, goodness, over 40 years. When I've had people speaking to me about their life and, and what was going on in their life. And typically it's not good things that are going on because people don't usually come to one of us just to just tell us all the great all things the great that are things. going on right. in their life. But by the time they get to us, it's pretty well gone down to the toilet. And, and just the last flush is all that's left. Okay? And, 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 and I'll always, I always have asked this question. I say, well, do you want God to honor your life? Mm. And I've never had one person in all these years say, well, pff, I have no interest in that. No way. Duh. Who would want God to honor their life? They always say, well, yes, I do. 
And I would say, then honor him with yours. The way to have God honor your life is to make choices that honor him. And perhaps up to this point, what you've done is you've spent your life making God dishonoring choices and your life is in the toilet. And I'm going to give you the only answer I know to give is make some decisions to honor God with your life if you want God to honor you. You want to talk about prosperity gospel? Yeah, yeah. That's do. that. That He'll is make the, you rich. Well, no, but I, that is, I think, the true prosperity, right? That God that is. God honors your life if you will honor Him with yours. And this whole heresy of the prosperity gospel, it tells people if you honor God with your life, then He's going to make you rich, and that's ridiculous. But He's going to honor your life. Amen. Do you want Jesus standing in honor of your life? Then honor Him with your life. In fact, Jesus Himself indicated this to the Pharisees when he told them their problem. He said, this is your problem, Matthew 5, 44. You seek glory from one another, okay? In other words, you seek to be honored by one another. You do not seek the glory that is the one and the only God. In other words, they wanted to be honored by man. They want to have the best seats. They want to have the great reputation. They wanted all of those things. But Jesus says, your problem is you're seeking the wrong honor. You're not seeking the honor and glory of God. So we must decide, who do we want to stand for us? Do you want the crowd to stand for you and honor you? That's easy to get. Just do what they want you to do. Or do you want Christ? Do you want men to honor you? It's easy to do. All you have to do is do what they want you to do. Or do you want the master to honor you? Every single day, Every one of us, we're faced with this decision, this choice, and virtually every decision we make, are we? Who am I going to honor here? Am I going to honor God? Am I going to honor Jesus? Or am I going to honor the crowd? Am I going to honor myself? Am I going to honor someone? Whose honor am I seeking in this situation? Whose glory, in other words, am I seeking? So I love this truth. So good. Because God has already said he'll do it in other places in his word. And right here in Stephen's life, we get to see Stephen actually visually seeing Jesus standing in honor of a faithful servant. When you stand for Jesus, Jesus will stand for you. You know, I told James this week, James preached on this text. It's been over 10 years ago. And uh, we, were, we were still very young. I was very early in my faith. And I remember, I remember a lot of sermons that he preaches. Well, he just, remembers better than I do. Yeah, but, but I remember this one on this text more than almost any one of them. The idea of, of Jesus standing was so powerful to me and so uh, just present in my mind and, and really impacted me. And, and so when, when I found out we were going to be teaching on this text this morning, I just thought, man, there's another one of me, I'm sure of it, somewhere in this room that's going to remember this moment just like I did, that when, if you will stand for him, he will stand for you. It's just Amen. incredible. Amen. Incredible. Uh, the second one, I guess, is uh, a, a, a little bit of a mouthful, but follow me because this is an important one. In every circumstance, God offers strength to endure, not to escape. In every circumstance, God offers strength not to escape the circumstance, but to endure the circumstance. Now, what do we want? We want to escape. We want to escape. Yeah. I want the, yes, absolutely, the easy way out. And God says, no, 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 I will give you the strength to endure it. That whole idea that God will give you never more than you can handle, God often gives you more than you can handle. <laughs> That's a lie. God often gives you more than you can handle because it, what does it do? It forces you to your knees and says, I have to rely upon you now because I can't do this. That's the whole point 
of submission. Now, not only does Stephen have this vision of Jesus standing, but he also talks about it, right? Verse 56, it says, and behold, I see the heavens opened up and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And this is exactly what he got arrested for to begin with. This is the exact opposite of what the religious leaders want to hear him say. This just just stokes the fire. But it didn't matter for Stephen because the truth mattered for Stephen. Stephen stood and Jesus stood for him. And it certainly wasn't a popular message. Verse 57, it says, They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. They sound like children. And rushed together at him. Must have been on Facebook. I mean, yeah, for real, absolutely. This is why this is why we have Facebook. You don't have to you don't have to worry about this because what do they do? They drag him outside of the city and they stone him to death. They murdered him. I just want to say this up front. This is what truth does to prideful, unrepentant people. It evokes rage, right? It evokes outright anger. When you, now I'm not talking just just your average unbeliever. I'm talking about someone who has decided to reject truth who has rejected Jesus, who has rejected the, the God's way of life, when you begin to present truth to them, it evokes rage mm. out of them. Um, now, we certainly don't stone people in America yet. Uh, if we, it was legal. We maybe get there, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but already around the world, stonings happen still on a regular basis, especially in the Middle East. Christians are still being stoned to this day, primarily by Muslims in uh, primarily Muslim-dominant countries. But I don't want you to miss this. The, the reason these men, these religious leaders, were so angry at what Stephen was saying is because they misunderstood the Scripture to begin with. Their foundation of belief about who the Messiah was was completely faulty. They opposed Jesus because they misunderstood everything that the Old Testament said about him. God for centuries had been saying, the Messiah is coming, the anointed one is coming, the Christ is coming, and this is what he'll be like, and and this is what he will do, and this is where he will come from, and this is what he will say. And so we get to the Gospels, and we we get these these religious leaders. He tried to stupid proof. I mean, (laughs) as stupid proof as it can be. How many messianic texts are there? There's there's several, several, several of them. And and so you get to the Gospels, and you get these Bible teachers, these Old Testament teachers of the law that so fundamentally reject Jesus, and it makes you go, what happened? What went wrong? How How did this go so badly? It's because they misinterpreted those texts. They read into those texts what they wanted out of a Messiah. Now, there's this pattern in the Old Testament. Follow me for a moment. A pattern in the Old Testament, if you read it uh, all the way through, you see this, this pattern repeat itself over and over and over again, and it goes like this. The people sin, God's people, Israel sins. God raises up prophets to call for repentance. The people don't repent. God judges them. They repent. God restores them, and then what happens? The people sin, God raises up a prophet, right? And so on and so forth. It just keeps happening on and on and on. Now, usually when God would judge them, it was not active judgment. It wasn't like he was just throwing fire down on them to judge them in some hellfire and brimstone kind of way. Typically, the way God judges Israel is not by pushing his hand down on them, but by removing his hand of protection from them and allowing another foreign nation to come in and dominate them. So it happens with the Assyrians, they go into Assyrian captivity, they go into Babylonian captivity, they go into Persian captivity, and now, during the time of Jesus, they are under the control of Rome. 
So they have for centuries been dominated by these foreign people. So as they read these texts, what they want out of a Messiah, out of a, out of a Redeemer, is for someone to come and remove these foreign threats and establish us as a dominant kingdom once again, just like yep. David. They want David to come back and sit on his throne and, and be a political ruler, a military redeemer, a great liberator from the evils of these pagan Gentiles around us. And so their desire led them to misinterpret all of these messianic texts. That's not what Jesus came for. He didn't come to deliver from political rule. He came to deliver from sin. And, and folks, there is, there is, this is why, I'll just say this, this is why I am so committed to, and James is so committed to what we do. Because if we are not in the Scriptures, we run the risk of, of not only desiring, but anticipating God's actions in a way that line up with my will and not mm-hmm. His will. Every time some world event happens, yeah. Oh, yeah. all these guys write oh. these books, well, this is the sign oh. of the end time, well, oh. and then 10 years later, yeah. after they've made a million dollars in their book, everybody's forgotten that, we've gone on to the next one. I, I mentioned this in, in, in our Colts class on Wednesday night. Uh, there was a book that came out in 1988 called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. <laughs> now, that book was really popular until when? January 1st, 1989. He made a lot of money in 88. Yeah. Now, guess what he did? He turned around and wrote another book in 1989. Guess what it was called? 89 Reasons <laughs> the Rapture Will Happen in 1989. And guess what the 89th reason was? It didn't happen in 1988. You think I'm making this up? I'm, I'm dead serious. These are real books that people bought into. This is what happens when we... So listen, we live in a time right now where the Bible is growing less and less popular. And, and I don't mean by the world. The world has always hated the Bible. The world has always rejected God's truth. God's people. I mean in the church. Yeah. Christians, we talk a lot about how we've lost this biblical value system in, in our culture. Most Christians don't even know what biblical values are. You know, people want major change in the church, but, but won't even, we have a hard time getting them to go to Bible study. <laughs> so how do we regain, listen, how do we regain biblical value if hardly anyone knows what's in it? If hardly anyone knows what biblical value even is? This is why we're so committed to teaching and preaching. The world is a very polarizing place. I think we can agree with that right now. 2020 has shown us, if anything, that, that people are growing a, a great amount of angst towards basically everything, Right? <laughs> We are sliding away from a Christian-friendly culture, like James said last week, to a Christian-hostile culture, a post-Christian world, if you will. If you, didn't, if you didn't listen to the sermon last week, I highly encourage you to go back because I think it's very helpful in understanding the environment we exist in right now as a church. The very idea of truth is rejected. It has become a very subjective concept. Well, you got your truth and I got my truth. Right, exactly. And as long as that works for you, then yeah, that's true right. for you. And as long as it works for me, it's true for me. The world just kind of forgive my language, it kind of sucks right now, right? Yeah, right. It's just not a good place. It, it's never really been a good place, but if, <laughs> if anything, right now, it is very, very polarizing. That is why we do what we do. I believe, starting in Fort Worth, Texas, the only hope for the world is Christ. That's right. That's it. Our hope is not in politics. It's not in a president. It's not in some social programs. It's not in science. It is in Christ. And what points us to Christ? The Scripture. Now, all of those other things are important in the right place. They're very important to a flourishing society. I'm not saying anything bad about them, but I'm saying the only true change, the only thing that can bring true change to the hearts of people 
is Jesus. You cannot legislate peace in the hearts of men. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ. Now, if that is the case, then we ought to be very interested in His Word. Amen? Mm -hmm. So we come back to this point. We come back to this point. In every circumstance, God offers us the strength to endure, not escape persecution like Stephen. Stephen could have very easily prayed to God, God, Lord, give me, a, give me an easy way out. Right? Give me one of those handy smoke bombs that Jesus used to always throw down and somehow escape the people in the blink of an eye. Why don't I get one of those? Right? Now, what text is that? It's, it's not an actual smoke bomb, okay. but, but he just disappears. It's, he does. He's very elusive, right? But Stephen doesn't do that. He doesn't back down from the truth. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of faith. He's bold. But listen, here's the key. He only spoke the truth because he knew it. So let me give you a principle. You can't stand for the truth if you don't know it. That's right. You can't stand for you can't live out your biblical convictions if you don't even know what convictions the Bible spells out. You can listen to us, which I don't know why you'd want to do that, but you can. We've studied this a lot because we're, they're martyrs. Right, yeah, exactly. They're suffering for the faith. <laughs> We have convictions, and we'll make strong cases for why we have those convictions, because we've spent a lot of time in the Word of God. But at the end of the day, you have the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and you have access to the Word of God. What is stopping you? Netflix? (laughs) Look, it stops me a lot. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm including myself in this. But what is stopping you? God will give you the strength to stand for truth, to endure persecution, to endure the heat that you will catch for speaking God's truth. But you got to learn it first. It's got to be written on your heart first. Stephen is full of faith. He's not delivered. He still dies, which is very different than the prosperity gospel, again. God's best for Stephen, man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, death. His best, That's his best, best life, life now, now is, right is, is death. He got stoned to death. Yeah, absolutely. He didn't prosper, but he did persevere. Amen. He didn't escape, but he did endure. You see, God, Jesus will, will stand for you if you will stand for him, he will give you the strength to endure persecution rather than escape it. And finally, I'll leave it to James. I love this particular part of the message. I mean, you know that he'll stand for you if you stand for him. That's wonderful. But listen to this. Oh, this is a good one. You never know the impact your faithfulness will have on others. Yeah. Most of us will never see it. The truth of the matter is, most of us will live our lives when we live faithful for Christ, asking ourselves a question, does my life really make a difference? Is my life really making a difference? And it is long after we are gone, if we were able to look back in history and see the difference that a faithful life for Christ has really made. Most of us never get to see that. Stephen did not get to see the impact, the incredible impact that his faithfulness had. Verse 58, they said that they took Stephen out of the city and they stoned him Mm. to death. Now here is how it happened. Stoning was forbidden inside the city boundaries because obviously it's quite loud and it's a messy, messy business and it upset the peace of the people. So when someone was to be stoned to death, they had to be taken out, by law, had to be taken outside of the city. And typically, there was a pit that was used for that purpose. It was outside, and they would cast the person into the pit. It was deep enough that the person could not climb out. And then they would stand around the pit, 
and they would throw stones mm. down into the pit, and they would pummel that individual's body with stones until they were unconscious, they were lying down on the, and they would continue to do it because this was not to, to stone to unconsciousness, this was to stone to death. And they would not stop until the person was, died, was dead. Now, in order to do this, they had to take off their robes. And because typically people in that day, they wore these long flowing light robes to allow the, the, the wind to penetrate and cool their bodies because it was a hot, arid climate, but to protect them from the sun. And so when they had to do any kind of ac ac uh, activity, they would either gird up the loins, they would get up the, the bottom of it and put it up under their belt so they could work, or they would just remove that for the moment. And since they were using their upper body, the scripture says that they removed their robes, okay, and they laid them aside. And as Stephen was being stoned after they'd laid their robes aside and they were throwing rocks, the scripture says that he imitated the Lord Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross. Remember what Jesus did on the cross for his persecutors? He prayed for them. Well, the text indicates to us that Stephen did the very same thing. He prayed for those who were taking his life. Now, when Stephen was stoned to death, Two very important history changing, if you want to go back to kind of the introduction that, that, that Derek talked about, two very important history changing events took place. The first one is that a great, humongous persecution broke out on the church. It was almost as if this thing had been kind of simmering beneath the surface. You know, Peter and John were arrested back in chapter 4, and we talked about that, but they weren't killed. They were released and just ordered to not talk about Jesus, and they continued doing it. And, and so this thing was kind of beginning to boil, but when, at, when Stephen did what Stephen did, and they finally got blood, when the op opposers of Christ finally drew blood, then it was like there was blood in the water now, and all hell broke loose against the Christian church. They were being put to death right and left. It was just like a mob mentality. Just, if you're a Christian, we're going to kill you. And so, obviously, what many of them did is they had to flee Jerusalem. They took off. And, and the Scripture tells us that they went, they were called the Diaspora. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But they went to all of these surrounding places and, and tried to find places to take their family and settle their lives and, and get away from the death that was permeating all of Jerusalem. Now, think about this. These were Christ followers. These were people who had come to know Christ. They'd been taught the scriptures and, and, and they were worshiping together. And then all this broke loose in Jerusalem. And when they fled, what did they take with them? Hmm. They took the gospel. But up until this point, the gospel had only been in Jerusalem. Because all of the first century, first Christians up to this point were all Jews who'd been there for the Pentecost. The Peter had preached on, on Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost. Thousands had been saved and many, many more were being saved. And they were staying in Jerusalem. So the gospel had not even gone out beyond Jerusalem. Remember Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. He said this is going to happen, and it took persecution for it to happen. So when they were persecuted, they were scattered out, and everywhere they went, they took the gospel, and they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. So the gospel was spread by persecution. Another example of how what God does is not how we think it's going to be. Yeah, Jesus yeah. is like, you're going to be my witness all over the world. It's going to be great. That's right. Jesus, don't bother with the persecution. I'll move. Yeah, yeah. 
No, they weren't going to move. No. They were enjoying the fellowship. They were enjoying oh, the, yeah. the worship. They were enjoying this. And this great persecution came. And they had to run to protect their families. They ran for their lives. They became what in James chapter 1, verse 1, is referred to. He's writing to this very groups of people, okay? James is writing his letter to what he calls the diaspora, the diaspora. Okay, that's a Greek word that we just kind of took into our English language. It is from the word dia, which is a preposition in Greek, and spora, which is a what? Seed. A seed. A spore is a seed. That's where we get our English word spore from the Greek word spora. So the diaspora means the scattered seed. When he writes his letter, I, I encourage you, brothers, to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith shall produce endurance, and let endurance have its full result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's writing to the very people that fled Jerusalem for their lives when persecution broke out, and he calls them the scattered seed. Isn't that interesting? Because James even understands what has happened. They've gone to these places, they've preached the gospel, and they have developed Christian communities in this place. I love that. that they, they went as seed, they were planted where they landed, they germinated, and they bore fruit for the kingdom of God. So automatically, when Stephen was stoned to death and his persecution broke out, a wonderful thing happened because then the gospel starts reaching out into Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth. But there's another thing that happened when Stephen was stoned to death. Not only were they scattered and the great persecution, but a young Pharisee was impacted. In verse 58, it says that they laid their robes. And I said they are going to take their robes off. They laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now that's all it tells us about this young man in this particular text. But we know from another testimony in Scripture who this Saul was. He was a young Pharisee who later became the Apostle Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. He himself tells us that in Acts chapter 22, a long time after the death of Stephen, after the three missionary journeys have been accomplished and all that. Acts 22, verse 20, and he says, And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. Hmm. This young, this is not an accidental mention of this young Saul who is standing by watching. He is the very one that became the great Apostle Paul, missionary to the Gentiles. Now, can you imagine how this young Pharisee, who already by this time was approving the death and persecution of Christians, how much he must have been impacted as he watched Stephen's faithfulness? I'm just trying to humanize here because the scripture doesn't tell us this, but, I, but imagine yourself in his place. How many nights do you think that this young Saul played that scene over and over in his mind of this Christian Stephen being stoned to death? Because he knew that all Stephen had to do was recant mm -hmm. and he would live. All Stephen had to do was deny Jesus and say, okay, I deny Jesus. They would have stopped stoning him. They would have pulled him out. They would have patted him on the back and said, good job, brother. But he refused to. He refused to. Instead, he faced death 
by being pummeled with rocks and prayed for them. And young Saul, this young Pharisee, witnesses it all. He must have thought, why won't he just recant? He could live. But Stephen refused. He prayed for them, and he died. Saul knew what we know. It's been famously said, a man will hardly die for the truth. (laughs) No one will die for a lie. Saul understood that whether this thing about this Jesus was actually true or not, this man believed it was. This Stephen had a conviction in his heart that Jesus was the Christ. He didn't believe it was a lie. He believed it was the truth. And on the basis of that truth, he was willing to die rather than deny Jesus. And it's just two chapters later, in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus, the resurrected and ascended Christ, confronts this Saul on the road to Damascus. What's he going to Damascus to do? He's going to Damascus to persecute some more Christians. But there he met Jesus and was changed. Hmm. And he became the apostle to the Gentiles. And isn't it intriguing that the first time that we meet Saul is in chapter 7, holding the cloaks of those who are stoning this faithful servant to death, and he is approving, probably even ordered it, He was a young Pharisee by that time and a man of authority and power, a Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, as he says, had all the credentials. Circumcised on the eighth day. On the eighth day. I mean, he had all the Hebrew credentials. And even though he was young, he was already to the point of being a Pharisee, a leader among the conservative movement of the Jewish faith. And he gave the order probably to have this young man stoned and he watched him give his life. You see, the point I'm trying to make here is that we never know how our lives of faithfulness is going to impact someone else. Stephen never got to see Saul changed, except from heaven. He never got to see the impact that his faithfulness that day would have on someone that God was going to use to carry the gospel in three missionary journeys and plant churches all over the literally the known world of his particular time and from there. Now get this, folks. We are Gentiles, except for a couple of our folks that come from a Jewish background have become Messianic Jews now, have become Christ followers. The rest of us, we're all Gentiles. You know why we get the gospel? Because of Saul, who became Paul, who carried the gospel to the unknown world, and from there, it spread. Mm. You never know. You know, we never know, why, we never know what impact what we do today is going to have on the future or what it's going to have on somebody that's going to do something in the future. We don't even have to die for Jesus for that to happen. We just have to stand for Jesus. We just have to be faithful to him. Now, let me give you an illustration of how this works, because it works in so many different areas of our lives. Do you know how wide a railroad track is? You go, wow, this is, this is a non sequitur. What's that got to do with anything? It is four feet, eight and a half inches it is the standard, okay, of a railroad track. Do you know why a railroad track is that width? Those tracks are that, that far apart? 
Because we used, when we started building our railroad system in America, we used the same gauge that had been used in England. In fact, it was English expatriates who already had experience in laying railroad track and, and the railroading that came over and actually designed our first railroads here in America. By that time, we'd kind of kissed and made up with them, okay, after the revolution. And, and they came over and, and helped us to develop the railroad system through. So they were just following what they were familiar with. It's how it was done in England, so we're going to do the same thing in America. Do you know why the English used that measurement? of four feet, eight and a half inches width of the tracks because it was the width that the English had used in their pre-railroad tramways. Before the England, England had, had railroads, they had tramways and that was the width that they had used for their tramways. So when they moved from tramways to railroad tracks in England, they used the same measurement and then the English expatriates came over and helped us develop, use four feet, eight and a half inches. Well, why did they use that measurement for their tramways? Because the, <laughs> they had used that width for their wagons, okay, before the tramways. That was the width between the wagon wheels that preceded the tramways. So then we asked, well, why did they set that distance for their wagon wheels? Because the old English roads had ruts in them that were that width. And they understood that if those wheels tried to, were not the width of that, those ruts, then when they went into the ruts, it would break the axles, and so they developed those wagons to be the width of the ruts that were already worn after centuries in the English roads. Who built the English roads? The Romans, the ancient Romans, all over Europe. The Romans were the great road builders. That's one of the ways that God prepared the way of the gospel to get out to the world because the Romans were such builders that they built all these communication systems and roads. And, and, and so because they had built those, road, those roads in, all over Europe. So where did the ruts come from? Okay, where did these ruts come from? Well, the ruts came from the Roman war chariots. The Romans built the roads so they could move their war chariots so they could conquer more, 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 more people. How wide were the chariot wheels on a Roman war chariot? They were four feet, eight and a half inches. Well, why? <laughs> why were the Roman war chariots wheels four feet, eight and a half inches? Because they were designed to be pulled by two horses and they measured two horses' butts and they were about four feet, eight and a half inches wide. Seriously, this is history. No. That's where it began. Our railroad system was started by two horses' rears. <laughs> but it doesn't stop there. The space shuttle, up to its time and probably still today, is by far <laughs> the most advanced technology and engineering in human history. Even though the space shuttle program has ended, the technology and the engineering that went into the space shuttle was the most advanced in human history, even up to this day. The space shuttle was powered by two solid rocket boosters. You remember hearing the talk of the solid rocket boosters? They would get it up there and then the, and get out, out beyond gravity, and then they could use other fuel. But those solid rocket boosters had to work in order to get out of our atmosphere. Actually, those solid rocket boosters ended up being just a little bit smaller than the NASA engineers had originally intended for them to be. You know why? 
because those solid rocket boosters had to be shipped to the launch pad site by rail. <laughs> and some of the, in that time, that period of time, some of the tunnels that those trains had to go through were barely an inch wider than the actual rails themselves. And so they had to reduce the size of the solid rocket boosters because they had to be carried on trains that actually were designed by the ancient Romans because they had horses' rears. Is that crazy? Now, what, Ro what Roman, when deciding how wide their wheels on their chariots were going to be and measuring very practically, well, we're going to put two horses, it's got to be that wide at least, and it came out on the average about that centuries and centuries and centuries later, it even impacted the development of the most intricate and advanced technology in human history, the space shuttle. Hmm. Those Romans never saw that impact, that that decision that they made by measuring two horses' rear ends was going to make. By the way, a lot of other things important have been developed by horses' rears. It's true. Is that? But you get the point? They never saw that. They had no idea the impact upon cultures, upon societies, upon uh, the future was when they made that decision. And neither do we, neither do we, ever know how impactful a life of faithfulness will be. Most of us will never get to see it in this life, as Stephen didn't. We just never know it. You see, when you stand for Jesus, Jesus stands for you. Stephen died as a martyr. That's an English word that, by the way, we stole from the Greeks, martureo, which literally in the Greek, in the English text that we translate means a witness. Martyreo is just the verb to witness. We've taken that and we've used it, created our word martyr, because what was Stephen doing? He was martyring himself, but what he was doing was he was witnessing. Mm. Mm. He was a witness to his faith in Jesus. Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's right. When Stephen stood faithfully and shed his blood that day, it became the seed of the gospel in the heart of Saul and churches. And even today, 2,000 years later, we have the opportunity to enjoy that and, and experience it. We never know. Folks, we have to stand for Jesus. There's never been a time in the history of our nation when it was more important for God's people to be faithful. That's right. And it doesn't mean that you have to be stoned to death. It doesn't mean that we have to give our lives. But it does mean that we have to stand for him who will stand for us. You know, years ago, almost 14 years ago, you preached a sermon in the It's All About Jesus series. Uh -huh. I remember and, the series. I don't remember the sermons, but I do remember the series. And you, you talked about how you said... You said you, you were talking about Christians who, who profess faith in Christ, but, but don't really live it out, don't really stand for truth. Oh, I do remember this. And you said something to the effect of when you, when you proclaim Christ, and yet you look like the world, and you act like the world, and you speak like the world, and you think like the world, and then what James did <laughs> is he literally spit on the stage. And he I goes, a loogie, actually. <laughs> he said, you spit on the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh -oh. 
It was an impactful moment. It was a really impactful moment. And there was a, a young kid there, 21-year-old, non-Christian, who heard that message. And about two weeks later, because of a conversation after that, that message uh, came to faith. And I'm sitting next to him right, right now because of it. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the beauty of… of God of, even uses our stupidity. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, I mean honestly, I was thinking the whole time, you know, I, who would have thought I, I would have been impacted by a couple horses rears, you know? <laughs> they say, how did you come to faith? Well, I saw a preacher spit on the stage one time. <laughs> yeah. But, but this is, you know, this is the thing. When James prepared that message, he wasn't thinking about, about right now. I was high on medical steroids. <laughs> and, and I certainly wasn't looking to come to faith. The doctors had me pumped up on medical steroids because of this growth in my brain. They thought it was just an inflammation at the time. And, uh, man, they made me crazy, and I did some crazy stuff. And I ran some people off during that period of time, and then one guy got saved. Yeah. We're still, we're still debating on whether that was a good trade-off yeah, or not. not. I'm not sure the trade-off there. <laughs> but, but, you know, God works in strange and mysterious ways. But, but again, all yeah. he did was proclaim truth. That's mm-hmm. it. Proclaim truth. Proclaim truth. Stand for Jesus. He'll stand for you. Amen. Well, you know, I just, I love this format of doing this. It is, to me, it is so natural. We're preaching, we're teaching the word, but, but in this environment, in this format, it just, to me, seems so much more personal yeah. and so much more natural, and I, I hope that you're enjoying it. Uh, we really are. Yeah. I am enjoying it a Amen. great deal. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your faithful servant, Stephen, um, who did nothing but just honor you and refused to defy your name and refused to turn his back, even in the face of death, and that you used that in such a miraculous way that even today the gospel would do what you said it would do, that it would go out from Jerusalem and into Judea and into Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And from where Jesus lived, we are about as far as you can get. We are about the furthest part of the earth from where our Savior walked and lived and died and rose again. So thank you for that. It's because of Jesus that we have hope. This week, Father, allow us the courage to stand for you, knowing that when we do, you stand for us. You honor your people. Mm. Praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you.